have your Bibles, you can turn there to Mark chapter 2. You have the Version app or the Oasis Eason app, you can turn there as well. These scriptures will be there, and some of them will be up on the screen. So, Jesus, in this, in this portion of scripture, he challenged the status quo. He challenged what was normal, what you're used to. How many of here like it when status quo is changed in your life? Really, I've got one or two that are, that are like brave out there and just ready for change, and I love that. But oftentimes, most of us, I think by an acknowledgement, most of us agree we don't like change all that much. Doesn't mean we don't like to change our scenery and go to the beach or anything like that, but I'm talking about when what we consider is normal changes and invades us. Matter of fact, I think we have that battle going on now generationally, and it's nothing new. Uh, we have the millennials that'll talk about the boomers, that'll talk about Generation X, that'll talk about whoever other X, Y, Z people there are out there. We just don't even know how to figure it out anymore. But there is just this discussion back and forth that goes on, and there's a battle. Uh, there was a, a post uh, this week that talked about uh, a millennial versus a boomer, and I just wanted to read this for you. Checking out at the store, the young cashier suggested to the much older lady that she should bring her own grocery bags because plastic bags are not good for the environment. The woman apologized to the young girl and explained, we didn't have this green thing back in my early days. The young clerk responded, that's our problem today. Your generation did not care enough to save our environment for future generations. The older lady said that she was right. Our generation didn't have the green thing in that day. The older lady went on to explain. Back then, we returned milk bottles, soda bottles, and beer bottles to the store. The store sent them back to the plant to be washed and sterilized and refilled so it could use the same bottles over and over. So they really were recycled, but we didn't have the green thing back in our day. Now, I was one of those kids that would go and find on the side of the road a Coke or Pepsi bottle that was worth at least a nickel, if not a dime. Who else did that? Who else? So you're showing your age right there, right? And I remember dragging those bottles in. It was like, that was money, you know, just raking it in. Um, Grocery stores bagged our groceries in brown paper bags that were reused for numerous things. Most memorable, besides household garbage bags, was the use of brown paper bags as book covers. Who did that too? I did it. Yeah, okay. So do you remember cutting that bag out, laying it out, so the, the design on the outside was on the inside, and you covered it over, and then we were real artistic in that day. We draw something and try to make it cool, right? And so we do that stuff and, you know, we use that. Um, so she looked at, so that happened. This was to ensure, actually I used it for books, school books. This was to ensure that public property, the books provided for our use by the school, was not defaced by our scribblings. Then we were able to pers personalize our books on the brown paper bags, but too bad we didn't do the green thing back then. It continues. We walked upstairs because we didn't have an escalator in every store and office building. We walked to the grocery store and didn't climb into a 300 horsepower machine every time we had to go two blocks. That's more pushing into probably my generation. But she was right. We didn't have the green thing in our day. Back then we washed the baby's diapers because we didn't have the throwaway kind. 
Who remembers walking up to the bathroom and dirty diapers being sitting in, yeah, I know, yeah, just, I'll let that picture just sit with you guys for a bit, you know, and God bless whoever did all that. Uh, God bless them for having to go in there and take that all out and do that stuff, uh, but that's what it used to be. Um, we dry clothes on a line, not in an energy-gobbling machine burning up 220 volts, like is in my house. Um, wind and solar power really didn't dry our clothes back in our early days. Kids got hand-me-down clothes from their brothers or sisters, not always brand new clothing. Who loved having hand-me-down clothes here? I didn't, but I did, right? All right, so, you know, we had hand-me-down clothes, and if you had an older brother or sister who was in the same school, like, recognize that you had their clothes on from about a couple of years before. So you might have come from a family that was Poe back then, all right? You know, it's called a Poe family, um, Back, but then the young lady was right. We didn't have the green thing. Back when we had one TV or radio in the house, not a TV in every room, and the TV had a small screen the size of a handkerchief. Do you remember them? <laughs> Thought that was big back then. Um, not, the, not one the size of Montana. Um, in the kitchen, we blended and stirred things by hand because we didn't have electric machines to do everything for us. Back then, we didn't fire up an engine and burn gasoline just to cut the lawn. We used a push mower that ran on human power. I didn't do that. Who did that? Wow, you pushed one of those little roller things, right? Um, we exercised by working, so we didn't really need to go to a health club to run on treadmills that operated on electricity. But she was right, we didn't have the green thing back then. We drank from a fountain when we were thirsty instead of using a cup or plastic bottle every time we had a drink of water. We refilled writing pens with ink instead of buying a new pen. We replaced a razor blade in a razor instead of throwing away the whole disposable razor just because the blade got dull. But we didn't have the green thing back then. Back then, people took the streetcar or a bus and kids rode their bikes to school or walked instead of turning their moms into a 24-hour taxi service in the family's $45,000 SUV. We had one electrical outlet in a room. True? Right? Just one outlet. You know, and you might have strung cord by cord by cord by cord. Not the entire bank of sockets to power a dozen appliances like is in our home. We didn't need a computerized gadget to receive a signal beam from satellites 23,000 miles out in space in order to find the nearest burger joint. But, but it's sad that the current generation laments how wasteful we old folks were just because we didn't have the thing back then. They hit home? Now let me turn it around a little bit. Let me just acknowledge, I think I'm considered the X generation or the, what, what are you raising your hand for? Okay, she said I am. I don't, I don't exactly know what that means, but I know that when I was a kid, the things that started, I had Pong, the little, you hook it up to a black and white TV and you turn two knobs and I used to fight dad in it. And my dad, if you know Mr. Harold, he was a fierce competitor and he would like scream at you if you scored and he would rub it in if, you, if he scored in on you. But we'd do that, right? we sit there boing and it's just boing, boing, boing. I mean, it's, and then, then I had a Commodore, a VIC-20, a 64, a 120. And so I am at the turn of the beginning of sort of the computer generation. But what's interesting is that 
We have so many stereotypes of how bad things are. I want to say that I think the millennial generation is bringing some things to light that my generation took advantage of and didn't think of. You know, it's easy for us to go, hey, um, you should dress like this for your job interview. And I get that to a point, but there's some places now, there's some tech companies that if you came in a three-piece suit and rolled in there all stiff and formal like maybe we used to do back in the day, they're not going to hire you. You're better off to wear what is fitting for that day. Um, the millennial, you know, there, there was this video. I tried to find the, the way I could download it. It had a lady come into a house uh, with, with this lady. The lady was in her house, and she had a son who had a friend. The, lady came, the girl came in, and she's like, oh, you have a beautiful house. And the lady said, oh, really, thank you. That was my mom's house. And so the lady responded, oh, so you're still living in your mom's house then. Think about it. Many of us had things given to us because there was some excess back in the day. And many now, many of the millennials are having to go to school and fight for a, a college education that sometimes costs well over $100,000 and come into a mortgage when they're done with their schoolwork. And we lament them sometimes of the way they think, and we force some of that upon them. We have given them uh, a debt that is insurmountable. I would say it's almost insurmountable. Many of us have been a part of that, whether complicit or implicit or whatever. There is uh, trillions of dollars worth of debt that we've laid on them. There are, you know, we're still paying for wars that have been waged in the past that really, you know, were just difficult and sometimes never won. And so we have a opportunity that we always want to pick on someone that's different than us and not recognize the struggle that is within a newer generation. Does that make sense? Like, I'm sure when I read that whole thing, it was like, yes, yes. And I want to say the older generation did that better than my generation did. You know, when I, when I look at what was from the, um, they, they just dredged the Susquehanna by the dam, and you should have seen the tonnage of plastic and stuff. I mean, it was like a landfill at the Susquehanna, which feeds the whole Chesapeake Bay. It just sort of comes out there. We have polluted everything, and I think the newer generation is waking some of our generation up to the excesses. I'm just going to speak for myself so y'all don't get offended. I don't care if you do, but I'll speak for myself, that, um, that we have done, yet we can be so stinking judgmental. Whatever generation you come from, whatever thing is, and I want to say that Jesus, he came to wreck the status quo of what we thought or what we think is right, even with, when it comes to the church. So if you open your Bibles again to Mark 2, we're going to start with verse 18. And you got to remember that Jesus is just coming off of healing a leper. He healed a paralytic. Uh, he was going around. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He did all these things, and all these things were going on and, and were going really good. Last week, he called some more disciples in. But then, all of a sudden, people turn it around to Jesus. Verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. 
So you can't argue about the healing. Uh, that's like, you can't argue about that. So you're just going to find something to jump on. You're going to find something to pick out because you don't have anything else to do. And I'm going to say that we tend to do that as human beings. We, we, we judge people. We find the one thing we can stick on. And so they did this to Jesus. And uh, so John the Baptist's disciples were fasting. The Pharisees were fasting. The Pharisees would fast twice a week. It wasn't commanded in Scripture. There was only once a year that it was commanded in Scripture, right at the, before the Day of the Atonement. But the Pharisees would uh, fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they would let everyone know what they were doing. They would go around and look miserable. It's like, yes, I'm fasting today. You know, it's almost like the monks from Monty Python where they're just hitting themselves with the books, you know, just, just smacking themselves with the whips on the back and just making them feel horrible. But John's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, and the people said to him, why, if everyone else is fasting, why do your disciples not fast? So Jesus is put on with a big question. Conflict is brought up. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast? While the bridegroom is with them, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus was saying this, weddings in that day were not a four-hour affair where you go to a half an hour to an hour wedding ceremony, or if you're Catholic, two-hour wedding ceremony, uh, you know, and then go to a reception that was over that evening. No, it lasted for like a week. It was a party where they spread out a lot of grape juice for people who had, to, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, they spread out, they partied. They had wine, they had whatever, and they enjoyed themselves. It was a big celebration, and Jesus was making a point. He was making a point that he was the bridegroom and that the church was his bride. It was the beginning, and we're going to look in the Old Testament where some of this was pointed out, the foreshadowing in the Old Testament of Jesus coming here. But Jesus like, look, while it's the wedding time, it is not time to fast. It's not time to fast. Fasting is good. I just want to say right to you now, fasting is good. In the Old Testament, you would have the, the whole um, uh, nation of Israel would fast after a loss, a military battle of sorts. Or if they lost someone in their family, there would be a fasting um, we fast today in different ways and for different reasons. Some of you do. Some of you might fast TV or internet or food or certain types of things. Some of you might celebrate that for the season of Lent. That's all good. Fasting is good, but the, the bridegroom, Jesus, is here, but he's not here completely, if you would, if you'd understand that. Um, so we are called to fast because it is a difficult time. But he said that they shouldn't fast then. Verse 20, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So fast forward to after, uh, at the cross at Easter, or excuse me, the cross at Good Friday as we're going to celebrate. They go and they see Jesus put on a cross. We know that most of them left him. John was the only one that stood at his side. We know that three days later, Jesus was resurrected. So you have the disciples fleeing when Jesus died. And then look at what happens after the resurrection. Jesus goes and he ascends into heaven. Then you have the disciples who fled at the crucifixion, who are willing to give their lives for Jesus Christ because they saw all that happened. To me, it's one of the greatest proofs that Jesus did what he said he did that the disciples fled at the cross but were willing to give themselves 
Uh, 11 out of 12, I think that number is right, for who died a martyr's death. John was the only one who survived that. The rest of them just died miserably. Judas took his own life. We think you know his story. But we have this that um, they recognized that Jesus was special, that he was who he said he was. And here is another place in time where he is saying he is not just a good prophet, he is not another John the Baptist, but he is God in the flesh. It's a huge point. He's letting them know that he is the bridegroom. That's another way we talked last week about who he said he was, who can forgive sins, only God can forgive sins. This week we see he says, uh, I am the bridegroom. And he makes a big big point of that. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So let me just give you a, um, a thought on that. Like uh, you, When you patch clothes, and I know we have some seamstresses here, we have some people who are very gifted at that, but you can't take um, a new thing and put it on an old garment because it'll pull the stitching away. And we might have some technology these days that might help that, but generally it's a statement. So I thought back again to my days in the 70s. So I'm going to date this for you. So look at this. Any of you remember this? Does anyone know what dungarees is? I, I, had, to, I had to Google that. <laughs> what is dungarees? But what was the point of it? You can't bust them, right? It was, what'd you say? Dungarees. I don't even know what it is. So uh, is it jeans? It's jeans, right? Yeah. I had to Google it. I told you that. I'm trying to be multi-generational here. I can just reach everybody. You know, so since 1889, anyone here then? All right, all right. Just checking. Seeing if you're awake. So, you know, Lee had dungarees. Their thing was don't bust them. And so when um, I was in the 70s and I had hand-me-downs, I had hand-me-downs that had holes in them. So pop up the next one. And somebody would stitch a patch, mostly in my knee area, would, would patch up our jeans because mom or dad didn't take necessarily every kid to the store because I went out in the dirt, I played in the dirt, I ate dirt, I, you know, I, I did all that stuff, and I made holes in my pants, and there were folks that would stitch them up. And so here's the thing, it was embarrassing back then when you come to school and you have patches sewn into some old jeans, right? So look at the next picture. These days, <laughs> these days, you pay big bucks for this. I mean, holes in the jeans, patches on the jeans, anything like that. And the more holes and patches, and sometimes the more skin that is showing, the more money the stinking jeans cost. I pulled up, a, I think that pair of jeans was like 80 bucks. Now, if I had shown that back in the 70s, what'd you say? I wouldn't have been able to go to school in that. That's true. It wouldn't have happened, right? I'd have been sent home or back then, folks, I got to paddle in school. Now, we're not, I'm just saying it. There was a bit of fear when I was a kid. All right, we're going to have fun with this. Who got paddled in school? All right. Yep, yep. Larry. 
Yeah, if you got paddled, you had to go home, and they told you you got paddled. Then you got paddled when you got home. Yeah, it's the true. But here's, here's the thing, though. And we laugh about that. We go, if this generation just got paddled more. Well, listen, let me tell you, there was abuse back in those days. Some of you probably got abused during those days. And some of us might go, oh, that's great. That's fine. I lived through it. But that doesn't make it right, does it? And so we have a generation that's come up a lot who have never experienced that, who have had probably too much freedom, and they're pushing against what has happened as atrocities that some of us have overlooked. And so we have these different people groups within a society that war against each other. I think my son said it best to me one day when he said, I think America has just gotten too comfortable with their lifestyle because if we had serious conflict going on, we would band together. We have too much time on our hands to argue with everyone and to sit on Facebook and get our point across and to argue and argue and argue instead of being humble, loving our enemies and doing what Jesus did. We like to challenge everyone else's status quo, but God forbid anyone point to our status quo in our lives, spiritually. Moving on. Mark 2.22, And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. So Old Testament style, sort of that time, they would have goat skins and the goat skins would be sewed up. And if you had a new goat skin, you would put new wine in it. And as the wine fermented, we're gonna look at it a little bit and see how that happens. It would expand the goat skin out and the goat skin would contain it while the fermentation process was completing. If you took a used goat skin and put new wine and filled it up, it would explode the actual goat skin, and you would no longer have the goat skin nor the wine. So we're going to watch this real short video. This is wine fermenting. That is a glass bottle. If you were to take new wine that has not fermented and you were to cap off that glass bottle, you would now have an explosive device on your hands. Your room would blow up and you would have glass shards everywhere and God forbid that you were in it. So the wine as it ferments, did you see it had a bubbler on the top? It kept the, uh, the proper gases in place but would allow the, the gas to move out and not allow bacteria to move in as it was fermenting itself. So Jesus said here, wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh skins. Is he trying to do a class on fermentation? No. He has a message 
for the folks around him. And this message transcends to us today. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Jesus looked at the Pharisees who were around since I think around 190, 150 uh, B.C., who they were around and they, they were a created being. They weren't, like an, they weren't an enforcer of biblical instruction. They created that job. So they had all this. They did their work. They began to add things to Scripture and do things that they felt was important and began to expect everyone else to do the same. So let me just say that uh, if you're younger here, and I think a lot of our younger generation is spoken, that they do not like the message of the church because the message of the church has usually been about control and legalism and conforming to what mom and dad said, and it conforms and it helps hold the, the, um, the generation intact in and obedient and keeps everyone under control. Churches more in, in the past and is still in the present, it's all about keeping people under control and creating status quos. The Pharisees did it. We, we have done it in our, in our brief history uh, in most of our lives, and many of you have seen it. We have created things that we have said are important that aren't what is in Scripture, not that everything that we do is in Scripture, but we've done things and created rules that aren't even biblically applicable, applicable to us. And so we've created a status quo. We've created a comfort level for us. And when people go outside of that, we begin to point, just like we do it the millennials or the baby boomers or the X generation and all that sort. And so we have this appearance of godliness. So I want you to picture the Pharisees, Jesus talking to them. They had an appearance of godliness. Their old skins, if you would, contained old wine. Now, I was, when I was in Normandy for D-Day stuff, I bought a bottle of wine on, the, on June 6, 1994, and I had a pipe dream that I would keep that glass, and, and on my 50th anniversary, that my wife and I would open it up, and it would be a, a, a magical moment. Some of you know how that worked. It pretty much turned to vinegar. It turned sour, you know, we just started beginning. I read about it, I didn't know anything about it at the time, but, you know, it finally popped it open, hoping I could still, um, you know, pull something off, and it was not all that. It was old wine in a beautiful glass that had sat too long. In the church, and I'm not talking about age, so don't hear old and new as being age. Does that make sense? I'm not talking age, but... Many of us have old wineskins and old wine that we're holding and obtaining, thinking it's going to be good for a future time when Jesus said our lives are called to be poured out. So we hide stuff in, we, we put it up in our barn, in the storehouses, we do all this stuff, and instead of allowing the new wine to be poured out, we contain it, hold it, and it turns to vinegar. It gets nasty. It's not even good for anyone. It just gets poured out. Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast that I choose, says the Lord, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? 
uh, in the Old Testament here, they were fasting in front of God. Why don't you hear us? Why don't you hear us? And God's like, no, this is not what I've called you to do. Fasting is good, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're making an equation to show that I'm doing this, God, so you've got to do this for me. That's not what fasting is about. God said fasting is about uh, loosing the bonds of wickedness, undoing the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. If you would, we sing a song sometimes called Break Every Chain. That is what the fast is called to be then. That is what, if you would get with me on the analogy, new wine looks like in a new wineskin. Jeremiah 31, 3, 33. This is Old Testament. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Old Testament is showing that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to give new wine, and he's going to put it into people. And I want to say, if the old wineskins don't get uh, transformed into new wineskins, the old wineskins fall apart and are worth nothing. Jesus said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to put my heart into people, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we must consider, I think, sometimes the message of the gospel. Our methods of evangelism, preaching, church growth, music, worship, all that stuff. Because sometimes we have to ask ourselves, are we being new wine and new wineskins to a new generation? Are we trying to fit the old model in and make it all work out that way? And I know and I'm thankful for a church that's willing to, you know, Oasis, you're just a great group of people that are willing to give. Everyone in this room gives up preferences to come here. Some of you are sitting, all of you are sitting on hard pews. Very few of you, I think, just come here and like, I can't wait to sit down in that lovely chair. My back is going to love it. It's going to be great. I love to park on the street, and some of you have lost mirrors on the street parking here. Yeah, yeah, people raising their hands on that. You're giving up something to come here. Some of you like hymns. Some of you don't like hymns. We try to do a blend of that. So it's all a thing. You can't make everyone happy. But what we're trying to do is see a multi-generational and, and more, I pray, of a multicultural blend to where all of what we do is different and new and fresh, not to add to the gospel but to present it in a way that's more, uh, or people are more open to walk in. So Jeremiah 31, he says, I will put my law in their hearts. So Jesus comes up in the, you know, early in the New Testament, Mark 2, and tells the Pharisees that new wine is here, and your old ways aren't going to work any longer. Next, um, Ezekiel 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. 
It wasn't this occurrence. You say, David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And we know that in the New Testament, in our current context, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that we can sort of try to hold him down in our lives, but that he is present if you're a believer, if you're being transformed, if your life is producing fruit, that is evidence of you being a believer. The Spirit is there. So he was also saying that I'm going to come and the Spirit's going to come and I'm going to put that new wine into new wineskins. This morning, if you are an unbeliever, and that is fine, we're glad that you're here. We have no problem with skeptical thinking. I welcome it, and uh, I'm just thankful that you're here. But I would say the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus took all of our funk, all of our sin, all of our shame, and he put it, God put it on him on the cross. There is nothing that we do to earn the gift of salvation. There is no level of certain characters and morals. we got to watch this, folks. We can train good morals and have somebody that's dead as, dead as can be on the inside. Some of the worst things we can do, and it's good to teach good morals. Do not quote me and say, Eric said it's not good to teach your kids good morals. It's not what I'm saying. But as a Christian, if we teach them how important their morals are, they become and they begin to believe that, hey, I've got to be good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough. I know my own heart. I can't do this, so I'm in trouble. Most people, when asked, why do you think God would let you into heaven? What would you say? They say, because I'm a pretty good person. That's a normal reaction. The old wineskins have taught people that moral living and certain straightward thinking is what is required. They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't write that down theologically, but they demonstrate it by their expectations. Folks, our expectations are this. If you consider yourself a Christian, you'll produce fruit. The greatest judgment I can throw on you is to ask you, is your life producing fruit? Not if there's green things flowing up, not if anything else, but is there fruit that is attracting people to the gospel? Not made up fruit that is stapled to a tree that you find not good morals. Hey, this piece of banana, I'm going to stick it on here, and it dies on the vine, but a fruit that is reproducing itself and that people are attracted to. If your, if your answer is no, you really have to look hard and say, am I truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's a hard word. The Pharisees, he looked at the Pharisees and pretty much said, you're old wine and old wineskins. You're useful for nothing. Both die. It's terrifying. So I just have to ask, what kind of wine is going on inside of you? I'm not talking about whining. We're all good at that. Matter of fact, I think we're too good at it. But that's another message. What kind of wine is on the inside? And is your life being transformed so that you're able to allow that fermentation process? So just, just think about it. Did you see that time-lapse thing of the wine? There are chem there's, chem there's chemical reactions taking place there. Inside a believer, 
this stuff should be bubbling up in you. The gospel should be overflowing to be poured out. You can't contain it. You can't put a lid on it or you're going to explode. So you don't put a lid on it. You don't take a bushel of it. You don't turn the light off. You just open up the gospel and say, here it is. This is how it's being transformed. New wine, new wine, new wine. How are you going to make your mark like Jesus did? There's a uh, song. I think his name is Wayne Watson. Some of you might remember him. I think he's probably early 70s. He was a Christian singer. He wrote this song, and it goes like this. They say he ran a carnival. He used to come to town till one September afternoon. He shut it down. They tell me something happened. Some say he lost his mind. Now, most September afternoons, this is what you'll find. An old man on the corner where he used to sell his show. Now he shouts what sounds like foolishness as the people come and go. Chorus goes, new lies for old, warm hearts for cold. Have I got a deal for you today? Come on, step up this way. And, the, and get your new lies for old, your new heart, your warm heart for your cold heart. He would put it in the paper and he goes from door to door. The people said he was such a fool to come back for more. Old friends are mostly puzzled. They don't know what to say because ever since that afternoon, he's just been that way. It's like the old man died and someone came to take his place. Now he just stands around there bellowing a smile upon his wrinkled face. He repeats, new lies for old, warm hearts for cold. Remembering that story, I once passed through that town. I thought I ought to stop and see if he was still around. There was someone on that corner where I'd heard he'd always stand, and he chuckled when I asked, where could I find this man? He said, that God, thank God that crazy fool finally died last spring. And I said, I'll take up where he left off then because I'm pushing the same thing. New lies for old. Warm hearts for cold. Folks, if the fermentation process of the Holy Spirit is taking place within your hearts and you're being transformed by the gospel, you will be able to almost not withhold the new lies for old. I'll take your cold heart and give you... (laughs) What was that? (laughs) Never mind. I will, I will give you that, and I'll offer you that. <laughs> Are you pushing the same thing? Is there a fermentation process even taking place? The problem is sometimes we push, quit sinning, quit sinning, quit sinning, do better things, do better things, quit sinning. You're a sinner, quit sinning, quit sinning. As a Christian, quit sinning. And we say it in our heads, quit sinning, quit sinning, quit sinning. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And nothing happens, right? The old wine is there. It's just sitting. But when we are transformed by the gospel, new wine comes in. We're focusing on Jesus now. 
things are being changed on the outside and changed on the inside, and we no longer have to produce. God is doing the work. God produces fruit, and God is reproducing the gospel in our lives. That's the word of the Lord. As uh, we get ready to stand, actually, just go ahead and stand as we're going to take communion as the worship team comes up. We're having an opportunity once again to partake of communion. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you uh, are following after him, we invite you to come to the table joyfully. If you want to know more about Jesus, uh, many of us here would love to talk to you. I'll be here after, right after the service. If you want to chat, I'd love to chat with you. Um, if you're a regular attender, it's an opportunity for you to give of your tithes and offerings. And if you like prayer, there's some of us up here who would love to pray with you as well. So let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you offer us new lives for old. Father, this morning I pray that maybe some of our, just confess that maybe some of our hearts have gotten colder. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table that you would warm it once again and renew the joy of our salvation. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.